I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Usually we just uh, get people's levels in their voices. You just tell me, Arlene, what have you had to eat so far today? Two boiled eggs, soft. How many minutes? Four. Oh, that's very soft. Yeah, very good. Runny. Mm, yes. Yeah. On, on some bread or anything? Yeah, bread next to it. You know, I kind of scooped it out, and when it spilled onto the bread, I ate the bread. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you break the runny egg next to the bread. Don't you get some yolk loss with that strategy? Okay. Yeah, the the yolk actually runs down the shell. Yeah, you get yolk loss. Definitely get yolk loss. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's my loss that right. the yolk is lost. That's what I'm saying. Why don't you break the egg right onto the bread? What the hell oh. are you both talking about? <laughs> this is Arlene and Alan Alda. Arlene's a writer and photographer. Alan is an actor known for MASH, The West Wing, and many, many more. They've been married for 65 years. I'm trying to picture this. And I, what, what, do you, what do you mean you break the egg near the bread? You know, Alan, like when you break a soft egg and the yolk runs out of the egg onto the plate. Yeah. Once the yolk is on the plate, it's hard to sop it up unless you have very soft bread. And you're going to get some of that yolk is never going to make it to your mouth. These, these are basically not things I worry about. Really? <laughs> yeah. If I don't get all the yolk, screw it. <laughs> <laughs> So when it comes to issues like yolk loss, Alan and Arlene don't really understand each other. But in most other cases, they do. Because they spent decades communicating in their marriage and their careers. Alan, in particular, has made it the focus of much of the last 14 years of his life. He founded the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University to help researchers explain what they do. He also wrote a whole book about communication called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face?, Today on The Sporkful, for Valentine's Day, Alan and Arlene Alda talk about using food to communicate, which they've been doing in their relationship ever since the night they met. Plus, I'll ask them for advice on food communication issues in my own work and relationships. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Now, before we get to the show, I have an important update on my two new pasta shapes, Vesuvio and Quattratini. I'm pleased to announce that variety packs are on sale now on Sfolini's website. You know, for a while, you could only get six of each shape, but now you can get one variety pack that has two boxes of Vesuvio, two Quattratini, and two Cascatelli. Now, these variety packs have to be individually packed by hand, which is why they were delayed and why it will take a few weeks after you order it to get it. But just go ahead and place your order, and it'll arrive soon enough, okay? So get that Sporkful Collection Variety Pack at Sfolini.com. That's S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I.com. Alan Alda has been in dozens of TV shows, movies, and plays. In the West Wing, he played Senator Arnold Vinnick. He's best known for starring in the seminal TV show, MASH. During those 11 years, he flew back from L.A. every weekend to be with Arlene and their three kids at their home in suburban New Jersey. Arlene was a professional clarinetist. She gave up that career to raise their three daughters, then became a photographer and author. 
But way before all that happened, they were college students at two different schools in New York City. It was 1956, and they were both invited to a dinner party at a friend's apartment, where the host was planning to serve a rum cake. And because there was no counter space, she put the rum cake on top of this refrigerator, which, when the motor went on, had a visible shake to it. <laughs> and as the, the shaking started and continued, this rum cake did a waltz across the top of the refrigerator and went plop down on the floor. And uh, Alan and I realized that, and we were the only two people at that whole dinner party who went in with our spoons and ate the cake off the floor. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, flirting over food is really the best way to flirt. It's combining two really nice things, food and sex. (laughs) (laughs) You're way ahead of me. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And what were other people in the party saying and thinking and doing while the two of you were sitting on the floor eating the cake? Well, we didn't really sit, as I recall. Uh, I think we did. I don't uh, Actually, I don't remember that detail, nor do I— do I remember what anyone else was doing? It was just Alan and me and that rum cake. For Alan, who says he was shy, that cake on the floor was the perfect icebreaker. Later that night, when he escorted Arlene home, she used a different food to communicate something to him. And we went on the subway from where we were, uh, which was an hour-long trip. And then I invited him in. My mother was actually—I live with my parents, so she greeted him. And we sat in the kitchen, and we talked and whatever. And uh, when he left, he went back on the subway. It was a long evening. And he— did you fall asleep on the train? What I happened? did. I, I woke up in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, okay. Which I mean, it's, which you know, is the opposite end of the universe. Yes, in the I world mean, we're talking about. Absolutely. Right. So then I got the train back again to Manhattan, and by the time I got home, it was dawn, <laughs> and I reached in my pocket, and there was a piece of rye bread that Arlene had given me for the subway ride. <laughs> that is a, a meaningful gesture. I feel like right. More food. <laughs> but, but what did you think in that moment? Well, I was real attracted to her, even without the rye bread. That was the icing on the cake. But the night that this rum cake happened was actually the second time I saw her. I sort of met her a few weeks earlier when she was playing chamber music in this mutual friend's apartment. She was playing clarinet in the Mozart clarinet quintet. And it was beautiful music. She was clearly a, a pro at the clarinet. And I, I got the courage to go over to her and compliment her. And I said something like, uh, you were good. <laughs> <laughs> Smooth. Yeah, yeah. I made a real impression. Did you ever remember who I was yeah. even? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now, after the rum cake, I'm really drawn to her. But I got to think, in my mind, I feel that I have to come up with a very special date to invite her on. It can't just be pedestrian. And those were so, the days where the woman had to wait for the man yeah, to Yeah, I would never have called him because that's not what we did in those days. Right. Three weeks went by 
because I, it took me that long to come up with what I thought was the perfect date, which was to go to the opera by Gertrude Stein called Twelve Saints in the Three Acts, which is an impenetrable opera. <laughs> <laughs> and we sat up in the last row in the balcony, and neither of us could figure out what it was about. Once we saw Gertrude Stein, then I really think we were inseparable. inseparable. Mutual boredom at the opera was not the only thing Alan and Arlene found they had in common. They also both love food. Sure, Alan may not analyze his egg yolks the way Arlene does, but he'll eat them with just as much gusto. Thing is, at first, they weren't into the same foods because they come from very different food backgrounds. Alan's family is Irish and Italian. Alan Alda is actually a stage name. His real name is Alfonso D'Abruzzo. Arlene's family is Jewish. Her parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe who settled in the Bronx. Our building was 100% Jewish. So the cooking smells that were in the hallway were very familiar to me because my mother cooked the same thing. And the thing that still gets my mouth watering, honestly, is the smell of onions simmering in oil. It's the most wonderful smell. Uh, There would be pot roast, boiled chicken, Uh, in chicken soup, potatoes, a lot of potatoes. I remember peeling potatoes a lot. But I didn't have one sense of what the Italians ate. Not one scintilla of a a smell of what they ate because the shopping street was mostly catering to the Jewish clientele. However, in high school— there was a pizza parlor, and the, the band director, as a treat, took the kids in the band out to the pizza parlor. And I was maybe 14 or 15, the first time I ever ate pizza, and I came back to report it to my mother. <laughs> it looked like this. It tasted like that. What did it you smelled like this. And, and how did it look and smell and taste? Uh... It was a stronger flavor than I imagined because the cheese melted on the red sauce was not a flavor that I was familiar with or a smell that I But I really liked it. Of course, Alan grew up with those strong flavors in his father's Italian cooking. I'm really interested in a variety of food, any kind of food that's Italian. <laughs> the whole range of the Italian whole range foods. Of it. No, but I, I spent a lot of time just trying to make a tomato sauce that I that I really would enjoy, and then I found out that Lydia puts it in a jar and it tastes just as good. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Lydia Bastianich you're referring to? Yes. Okay. And um, when you you were so you were working on your is this like a, like a Sunday gravy? Was that what you were going for? Oh my! Yeah, my father used to make a Sunday gravy, and that's what the, 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 there's a, there's a whole branch of Italian Americans who call tomato sauce gravy. Right, and he would be flipping hunks of meat into it, and it would cook literally for three hours. And when you were working refining your Sunday gravy recipe, were you trying to replicate your father's? No, that's the thing. First of all, it was too hard. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, I didn't like all that meat in there. I just wanted the fresh taste of tomatoes. I'll tell you about a dish that really makes me crazy. I love it. Go and on. it's so easy to do. 
I learned it from Giuliano Bujali. Do you know him? The no. Italian chef and cooking teacher. And it's called Pasta in the Style of Naples, 1842. You take rigatoni or penne, something short like that, okay. shortcut pasta. You never boil it. You put it in a big bowl and you put in, Giuliano calls for a cup of good olive oil. I find a half a cup of olive oil is fine. Mm-hmm. Stir it up and let it sit for 15 or 20 minutes. And then you pour in a nice large can of tomatoes, salt and pepper, no garlic, no oregano, nothing like that. No cheese. Right. No cheese. Put it in the oven in a Pyrex dish for 40 minutes. It's unbelievably good. It's so fresh. You're tasting the, the olive oil has soaked into the pasta. The tomatoes have soaked into the pasta. And it, it's not al dente. It's gummy. Mm. And you think that's not going to be good, but it's fantastic. Yeah, it's really delicious. Really? Yeah. We have a little bit of a debate, though, in my household. Perhaps you, too, as a couple who've been married for as long as you have and who know so much about communication can help me because my wife likes her pasta soft, mushy. What mushy. I would I, what I, I would describe it as mushy. She would just sort of probably say she wouldn't. Soft. Right. I like it al dente. I want to be able to really sink my teeth into it. Yeah, I do, too, most of the time. And I find that this pasta texture debate plays out we, we, With the kids. We fight it out through our kids because she'll make the pasta for the kids and they'll eat it and she'll say, see, the kids like mushy pasta. <laughs> Can I make a, a, just a humble suggestion? Please. <laughs> Why don't you get a strainer and pull out pasta while it's still al dente? You eat that and let them cook the other stuff until it <laughs> dies and let them eat that. What would be wrong with that? Well, I, I want my kids to know what good pasta is. Yeah, that's never going to work. But wait a minute. You know, kids always like what they can't have. Yeah. This is my dish. You good. can't have it. There, Then, then you'll get them Reverse psychology. Hooked. Got it. Yes. So I'm, I'm not going to let them have the good pasta. No. No, no that's but for then dad. A, that's yes. for dad. And then as a special treat for dessert, they can have the One piece of rigatoni. <laughs> <laughs> See how that genius. flies in, yes, your, yes. in your household. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I'll get t- in touch with us if you get divorced. Yeah. <laughs> Can I come live with you? No. <laughs> Coming up, I ask Alan for more advice, this time on how to communicate food science information here on The Sporkful. Plus, Alan and Arlene share the secret of hosting a good dinner party. Stick around. Saute, you stay, because it's time for some ads. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? 
Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line, they take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn Best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. 
Last week on the show, we celebrate the life of Jean-Robert de Cavell, one of the most famous French chefs in one of America's best-known cities for French cuisine. Not New York, not L.A., talking about Cincinnati. I talked with food writer Keith Pandolfi about how one chef can change how a city sees itself. Cincinnati is one of these cities that, like, you know, you grow up here and you're like, I'm getting out of this damn town as soon as I can. And then, like me, I went away for 20 years and I came back. And I think... Part of the reason that I came back was I thought, well, Sean Robert is there, so how bad could it be? He loves it. But I think he did make this whole city, he reminded us of the things we should be proud of. Keith and I also come up with a new football food craze to celebrate Jean Robert's beloved Cincinnati Bengals. Listen to that episode to find out what it is. Now back to today's show. As I said, Alan Alda has devoted a lot of his life to teaching people to communicate better. As host of the PBS show Scientific American Frontiers, he helped scientists share their research with the rest of us. In 2018, he launched his own podcast called Clear and Vivid. It features conversations about connecting and communicating. As you know, we sometimes get into food science here on The Sporkful, so I wanted to ask Alan how we could do it better. So, Alan, a few years back, we did a show all about MSG, monosodium glutamate, and all about the history of this so-called Chinese restaurant syndrome. And we delved into the science of it and showed that, really, it, it's it's been debunked. It has? To be clear, because I don't want to get more letters, yeah. uh, <laughs> yes. there may be some percentage of people out there who do have a legitimate sensitivity to MSG, just like some people can't eat onions or garlic. But first of all, there's never been a definitive scientific study that's shown that people have a reaction to MSG when they don't know that they're eating it. Uh. And most people who think they have a react an issue with MSG don't in fact have one. And so we did this story, and I got a lot of people who were very upset with me uh, over the episode, and some people who loved it. But what I'm curious to get your take on, one of the things I learned from doing that episode was that, you know, there are many areas in which conservatives are anti-science. But I I came to realize that I think that with food, it's more often liberals who are anti-science. <laughs> <laughs> you mean they, they, well, you they ha- like what they like and they don't want to be told it's bad? No, Is they, that what you mean? No, there, there's a perception that everything artificial or man-made or made by any big uh, company yes, must yes. be bad and dangerous and bad for you in, in all, all in equal measure. Like, that every single thing that was ever created in a lab should all be completely removed, every speck of it from your diet. Because I, after this episode came out, I found myself in social media discussions with people who, when I looked at their social media timeline, Mm. I could tell that they're, you know, a a, a week ago, they were sharing articles about how conservatives are so stupid because they don't believe in global warming. Yeah, that's interesting. And now they're going to turn around and and say to me, my doctor told me not to have MSG, therefore it must be dangerous. And I'm like, that's not the scientific method. That's not how science works. And and yet they didn't didn't want to hear it. So how do you communicate with a person who doesn't want to see or consider evidence because it's runs counter to their pre-existing opinions about MSG or GMOs or whatever it may be. You know, a lot of the work I've done in trying to help people communicate better, the effort has been not to browbeat people into into thinking that we know something that they don't know. The person who doesn't know something isn't suffering from a deficit. What we work on is relating in a way that's generous, open, respectful most of all. And what I think I've found works when you're talking to somebody who really doesn't agree with, with anything you have to say is to first find common ground. What experiences have you had in your life that are like theirs? 
and you realize there's a common humanity and you're willing a little bit more on both sides to listen to the other person. And what, what thrills me is I just found out last night that George Mitchell, the former Senator George Mitchell, is going to be on my podcast, who specializes in exactly what I just said. He was in Ireland and helped stop the fighting between the Catholics and the Protestants right. by doing this amazing thing. They could talk business and yell at each other during the day at the conference table, but at night they had dinner together and nobody was allowed to talk business. They could only talk about their childhood experiences and things like that that helped them understand that they shared a common humanity. That's a powerful thing to bring us back to one another through sharing who we really are. And sharing food. And food. You know, I was was kidding before about flirting over food, which is how Arlene and I got together. It's even better than flirting. You can flirt with the existence of the other person. You can let them into your consciousness. You can say to them, just through sharing the meal with them, you're worth sitting down with. So food can help bridge some of the biggest divides in the world. But it's also part of bringing people together at an ordinary dinner party, even one where the rum cake doesn't end up on the floor. Arlene and Alan like to host people at their home. I was curious about the role food plays in those situations. One thing that I worry about sometimes, because I'm sure you guys have, have seen and heard that there's more and more people are choosing to put themselves on all different kinds of specialized diets. Vegan, gluten-free, raw vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, flexitarian. And look, I know that some, <laughs> I know <laughs> that's a thing too. Flexitarian, yeah. I haven't heard that. I, I know that some people do it for, sometimes it's for religious reasons, sometimes it's for well-founded ethical reasons. You know, I'm, I'm not judging yeah. the reasons, but I do worry that it, it's like nowadays when you want to get together with people for a meal, the first question you have to ask is, you know, what can or can't. What kind of variant are you? Right, right. <laughs> and, and it does mean that you often end up in situations where you sit down at a meal with a group of people and, and you're not really, even though you're eating at the same table, you're not really able to have everyone at the table share food. What do you think of that, Arlene? That never bothered me. <laughs> I, I think of sharing food as a way of getting us together. And the food, in many ways, is secondary. In my, It's not secondary in quality or in presentation. Or, and I'm, I'm very proud of fussing when we have friends over. I mean, if someone said, I only eat... Uh, lettuce. Hey, eat your lettuce. We're going to eat it. <laughs> you know, we're time. having this, and that, that's fine. But and we're sitting and talking. When we have six or eight people over, and I, and I think that six or eight people is the top limit for having one conversation around a table. One of the pleasures of eating together is not forking food into your mouth. That's not a special, you don't need anybody else around you to do that. <laughs> But one of the great pleasures is everybody focusing on the same thought process. Uh, I see what you mean, but my experience is like this. This thing happened to me when I was a kid. No kidding. What an amazing story. You know, all of the things that we can do together. And Arlene and I, I think, really enjoy helping that happen around the table. 
what are the keys to facilitating a good dinner party conversation? Picking up on what, one thing is picking up on what somebody says and asking questions about it. But we do we do do things like to to get in, involvement. For instance, Arlene puts out on the table a half a bag of peanuts. She spreads out all across the table. <laughs> what's so the, that, what's so the thought can, process there? You can nibble in between quartets. <laughs> but it's something unusual. You say, a peanut. They think I'll try a peanut now, you know, <laughs> right. or, or Hershey Kisses or something like Just that. Just on the tablecloth? Yeah, yeah, on right the right tablecloth. Yeah, right all the way down the middle of the table. <laughs> like this. It's just thrown out. Right. And it it's different. And when you guys are hosting people, what's the division of labor in the kitchen? I do what she tells me to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually the cook. I don't have any strict rules about anything, and I've gotten very, very kind of mellow as I've gotten older, and I like that. So back before you got mellow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you wouldn't have wanted to be in the kitchen <laughs> before I was mellow. <laughs> but I, I'm sure, because I know certainly it happens in my house, too, sometimes cooking for other people— uh, cooking uh, together can be stressful. Tell me about what were some of the times that, that you guys maybe weren't working so well together in the kitchen? You know what I say about a long marriage? What? Short memory. Mm. <laughs> I don't even remember what the stresses were. I mean, today's a happy day, so. Yeah, yeah ever since Arlene lost her memory, we've been having a happy day. <laughs> That's Arlene and Alan Alda. A few years back, they celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary with a rum cake. But they didn't eat it off the floor. Arlene Alda's latest book is called Just Kids from the Bronx. It's an oral history featuring interviews with Al Pacino, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and many, many others. And yes, it's true, Alan Alda has a podcast called Clear and Vivid. Recent guests include actors Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone, as well as the astronomer Sarah Seeger and the ethnobotanist Dr. Sarah Quave. While you're checking out Clear and Vivid, make sure you're subscribed to our podcast. Whether it's the subscribe button, follow, like, favorite, whatever it is in your podcast app, please do it. Thanks. Remember to order your variety pack of pasta shapes, all three of my shapes, in one package. You get two of each on sale now at Spolini.com. That's S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I.com. We'll be taking a break next week, back in two weeks. But in the meantime, make sure you check out last week's show about the unlikely love affair between the French chef Jean-Robert de Cavell and the city of Cincinnati. This episode was originally produced by Ann Sani, Aviva de Kornfeld, and me, with editing by Rob McGinley-Myers and mixing by Casey Holford. This update was produced by Andres O'Hara and mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. A Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Nora Ritchie and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Jason Carver from Albany, Georgia, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program presented by State Farm. 
As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.